This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest this week, and boy, I'm happy about this. Michael Corita, the New York Times best-selling author, our very own. Michael, thank you for being on Big Talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Michael has a brand new book, one of many. This is number 13, right? This is Lucky 13. They actually wanted me to uh, sign books at the warehouse on Friday the 13th. And I pushed for Thursday the 12th instead. I didn't, Friday the 13th, 13th book. It, it didn't feel good. Yeah. The new book, How It Happened, a crime novel based on, well, I wouldn't say based on, but at least inspired by, right, Michael? Uh, an incident that happened here in the Bloomington area about 18 years ago. Yeah, I definitely, I certainly wouldn't say based on, um, but influenced by, um, the Jill Bierman um, murder and disappearance. And I was 17 years old when Jill uh, disappeared. And they found her bike um, very close to where I grew up. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I, I can remember very vividly the roads being closed for po- um, police searches. I went out with a few of my friends to join in some search party efforts. And um, that's all very vivid to me from childhood memories. And um, Jill was 19. and oh, my, A freshman at IU. A freshman at IU. And my sister uh, was, she would have been 20. Huh. And so there was that parallel, too, of, you know, having just, my, my older sister had just gone off to college and felt very similar. Um, so there was definitely an, an emotional landscape that, it touched on for me, um, and I think my family, certainly my family. And one memory in particular is very vivid. Um, the four of us were all in the car together. And as I look back on that, it was probably one of the last times that we ever were in the car in that kind of classic family unit. Yeah, right. Because my sister was back for the weekend, and we just ended up you know, all together. It's the two of us in the back seat, my mom and dad in the front seat again. And I, I don't know that that ever really happened again. Yeah. Certainly not frequently. The nuclear family. The, exactly. And we were driving down um, Acuff Road, and there's a bridge over Stouts Creek, which is, I spent countless hours uh, in Stouts Creek playing, hiking, um, growing up. And there was a, a gentleman off to the side of the road, kind of staring into that creek. And um, I think my mother asked about him, but it might have been me. I, I don't recall that. But I remember my father saying in this very um, hushed and, you know, almost reverent yeah. voice, that's Jill Bierman's father. Wow. And, um, you know, when you're 17 years old, particularly I think if you're a 17-year-old male, you feel like you're an adult. You feel mature and you feel like a man and then there are these moments that come up and punch you in the mouth and remind you that you're a child and that definitely is one of them for me um you know seeing seeing mr bierman out there looking for 
uh, a girl who was basically the same age as my sister. And being in that situation with my whole family was, it was just very jarring and a, a very vivid memory. And I think a, a lot of writers, but certainly myself, stories come from images. Yeah. And you have, it's our job to recreate an image in sort of a freeze frame with words. And then you begin, when you're working with fiction, to ask questions about that and to wonder about that moment. And I wrote an entire novel that came from just imagining someone building a lighthouse in the woods. Don't ask me why I thought of that, but I did. And wondering who would do that and why that would happen, that gave me a book called The Ridge. And yeah. so most of the time it's you know, something I've imagined, uh, but this one was very, very real. And this thing, this incident, has been sort of nagging you for all this time, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, I, when you think about a writer's formative years, if I look at, at key moments in my writing career, um, age 16, I meet Bob Hamill, who was my writing mentor right. at the Herald Times, and I began really working with him and, and taking the craft more seriously. And, and I'm 17 when uh, Jill disappears and, you know, we, I have that, that moment, um, that encounter. Then I'm 19, same age that she was, mm -hmm. and in my early days working for the, uh, the Herald Times covering some police beat stories. It should be added you were doing that while you were a student at the Indiana University. Correct, yes. And then also I was doing part-time work for a private investigator in town, uh -huh. um, Don Johnson at Trace Investigations. So all of these things are going on, and in the, in the background, I'm, I'm trying to write, uh, I am writing my first crime novels. You know, unpublished at, at that point, the first one I wrote that was published, I was 19. So all, all of these things are happening at the same time. And um, I think to a lot of people in this community that that story and, and the haunting question of it, um, it, was, it really was a very dominant part of the town for a while. Um, you know, the population I, was spooked. Absolutely. You know, people were, were scared and horrified and, and, of course, so much concern for her family. And it, I think, I don't, I was going to limit it to my generation, people who grew up around them, but I don't think that's true at all. The town really hadn't seen anything like that before. And uh -huh. I, you know, it was sort of our community tragedy, which is a poor way to say it because it, um, it's the Beerman family's tragedy, but but in a way, we it all felt to connected us. to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What kind of teenage kid like you writes a crime novel? <laughs> See, I I look at it the other way around. I lived in fear of having to get a real job at some point, and so I thought if I can just make things up and someone pays me for them then I can avoid working the rest of my life. So it was my early retirement venture, really. You're kidding. Is that really what you were thinking? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yes, I'm largely kidding there. What, <laughs> what, what I was thinking was uh, I, I love books. You know, I've loved books since 
I could read since before I could read. It, my parents are both voracious readers. Uh, books and storytelling was always a huge part of my life. And the I, I, maybe I went through some other phases, but there was n never a, a job, even going back to being very young, that seemed uh, more appealing and, and romantic to me than being a writer. I, I just I always wanted to do that. You were a little kid writing fan letters to authors? That's right, yes. Some wrote back, too. Who were they? Um, let's see. I had some – well, I ended up having a lot of correspondence, actually, with the son of a writer named Keith Robertson. Um, because when I was eight years old, I tracked down a letter or an address for Keith Robertson, and I wrote him a letter, and it arrived a couple weeks after he died. And apparently it meant a lot to his son. So oh. his, his son wrote back to me. And I maintained correspondence with him for years. In fact, he, he still was sending me notes um, after my first few books were published. Wait a minute. You're eight years old and you're tracking things down already? <laughs> There's another indication of something that you're going to do later on. The, uh, oh, the PI interest was always there, yes. And uh, I discovered that there are no uh, people in this world more helpful and probably more tolerant than a reference librarian. Yeah, right. So I, I really wore some of them out with my requests, but um, you know they always found the writers I needed. So it was I wrote a lot of. Was, uh, Bill Wallace was a writer I had some nice back and forth with when I was a kid. There were a few others. In um, your pre uh, pre high school or even into high school days, is there a single title or a couple of titles that stick with you to this day? Oh, so many. Uh, Keith Robertson's work, it, yeah. it would be central to that because those are books my father grew up loving and um, we were at the Monroe County Library and he went through the children's section to see if he could find these books that he had such fond memories of and he did and you know, sort of passed that legacy on to me. So Neat. he stands out and then um, during the period when in high school when I was working with Bob Hamill and trying to move toward you know, adult fiction um raymond chandler and dennis lehane mm -hmm. so uh, you know i had sort of the noir past and noir present and uh th those were the I, I can't tell you how many times i reread chandler and lehane it's something about 1930s 1940s 1950s la right absolutely yes exactly and then you move to someone who uh was not only a a role model and a mentor, but has become a good friend, Michael Connolly, who yeah. sort of picked up that mantle. And, um, you know, I've had the great privilege of, of getting to know Michael over the years, and he, I feel like he embodies that, as you say, that nocturnal Los Angeles tradition just so well. Right. Rain-slicked streets and, uh, exactly. you know, people smoking cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now banned on all Disney films, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. This Berman case, I want to go back to it again because, I, Michael, I just arrived in this town in 2009. I recall the Lauren Spirer case, of course. That was about two years later. This one I just started reading about. This case blows me away. There was a uh, woman who confessed to the crime and implicated two others. You take some of that and put it right into this new book. Yeah, I took the idea at least of the yeah. the confession because the story that she told at the time I was working for the HT 
you know, I, I was covering some of that. And as a uh, police beat reporter, you, know, you, you feel like you're helping to inform a concerned community yes. about the way the case is progressing to closure. I think we all had the sense, you know, journalists and investigators by nature are, are cynical people and skeptical people at least. Still, there was the sense that, you know, this was it. This was going to, to finally, after years, uh, bring this thing home. And then to find out that, you know, it, it had all been a lie and to have her confession recanted, that stuck with me imagining it from the perspective of uh, an investigator, obviously family members, but the book is told from a single point of view. And that's from the perspective of an investigator who's brought in to obtain a confession. And, you know, once once he's done that, believes that he has brought closure. And, um, you know, it's not a spoiler of the book to say he discovers otherwise. You change the setting to Maine. Right. And uh, there's a lobsterman. There's an FBI agent who you just referred to. There's a local jailbird as well. These are the three main characters of uh, how it happened. Right. I think one of the reasons I struggled to write the story for so many years, even though I um, had the I had the desire because it it just continued to uh, return to me. You know, it was it was a story that I felt I had to deal with in some way, and I could not imagine telling it if it had been set in a small Midwestern college town, that would have felt too close. Why didn't you just write a true crime book on it? Well, I think if, if anyone is ever going to, uh, to actually go, you know, head on into that story, that's probably the way it would need to be done. But for me, I actually needed to get more distance between the fiction and, and the factual sort of seeds behind it because I didn't want to feel as if I was fictionalizing a, a true account. Yeah. And I also, it's my writing process, I need to feel like um, the characters are guiding it, the characters are shaping it, and that I'm continually surprised by what they do, by what they learn. You know, this is, I don't write with an outline, so it needed to be fresh terrain for me, and it needed to be a case that is really not similar in any way to the, the way the, the case here played out. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the farther I got away, the, the more it became the novel right. and not a recapturing And of you're this. limited by truth and facts, whereas as a novel, it's a universe of possibilities. Absolutely. And I think uh, the goal, to, to me, the goal of writing fiction is you want to get to the truth of sort of the human spirit uh-huh. and the way uh, characters respond to conflict. I needed that total freedom of a, an entirely different story, an entirely different cast of characters to achieve that. And then also there's the blatant unfairness of trying to, to have the best of both worlds. Okay, you mentioned why not do it as a true crime piece earlier. I, I think that's the only way it, it should be done. Right. Um, if you're going to go 
right at the the case in uh, any sort of factual way or structural way, then then do that. Put on the journalist's hat. As opposed to Truman Capote writing in cold blood about uh, the Kansas murders. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have seen a little quote by you where you say, characters talk to me. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they do. You know, when when the writing is going well, I feel more like I'm transcribing than creating. And one of the kind of strange uh, little quirks I've noticed is when, when it's going really well, and particularly in a uh, dialogue exchange, I find myself mouthing the words as I type them. Uh-huh. And I'm, all, I'm, I'm, just, I'm sort of lost in this. You know, it's what uh, creatively or we talk to athletes, they talk about um, reaching a flow state. Yes. Or being in the zone, you know, pick your term. Yeah. But for me as a writer... I'm in that flow state when I'm writing as fast as I can just to try to keep up with the exchange in the room. And I say the exchange in the room, but it could, you know, it's just me and my desk. And yet I, I feel like I'm frantically trying to, I'm back in journalist mode and I'm, you know, observing. I, I'm scribbling as fast as possible so I don't miss anything. Yeah. Um, because it, you do get the sense when, when, it's, when you're really locked in. I have the sense that this is, I'm observing it, yes. Do you have a strict discipline when you're writing? Do you write from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m.? Or does it just come to you? The, the discipline is I try to write every day, and I have a, a word count minimum that I try to hit. 50, is that so? 1,500 words a day, uh, knowing that most of them usually hit the cutting room floor. I yeah. delete more than I keep. Um, and that, that just keeps me moving forward. And it also, I think the most important element of that is it keeps my mind in the story. You know, so I think most good achievements in a book are made by the subconscious. It's, it's not necessarily going to be when I'm at the desk. It might be when I'm out on a hike, might be, you know, driving the car, taking a shower, but all of a sudden your subconscious is grinding away on this and you think, ah, okay, now now I get it. And you see something that you've already built into the story, but you didn't consciously realize it was there. And that's, to me, like that's the moment of this great joy about the craft. It's when you realize something that the characters and the story already know and, and you're catching up. You say you don't use an outline. Right. How do you know when you're finished? <laughs> That's actually a very good question because um, it's not as simple as reaching the end. Uh, I do an enormous amount of rewriting and revising. And, you know, getting that first draft done is, it, it's a great feeling, but to me it's really, it's the starting point. You know, mm -hmm. the, the first draft of how it happened uh, featured five point of view characters. Um, the The lead was a younger journalist. Uh, the character who becomes Barrett, the FBI agent, was a uh, woman who was in her 60s and had retired from the Bureau and moved back to Maine. So that gives you a sense of just how dramatically I revise and rewrite. Uh, you were throwing spaghetti against the wall in a way, huh? Yeah, I guess that's, I mean, when you, when you have no plan, right? You write, you're trying to, uh, it feels like detective work to me. I'm, I'm trying to catch up to the case, and I don't understand it any more than my characters. So I always, I always laugh when I see reviews that compliment me on plotting. Uh, 
<laughs> and I get a decent amount of reviews. That, you know, we'll talk about my knack for intricate plotting. And if it seems intricate, it's because I make a real mess and then need to write my way out of it. And then, yeah. you know, you polish it and try to sort of hide the fact that you ever, you know, were going in a completely wrong direction. So obviously that polishing, that fixing, that uh, massaging, that finessing is invisible. People Ideally, yeah. Tell. Ideally. Yeah. You know, you want, you want the last draft to read like it was always designed that way you're just telling a story exactly here's one thing i wanted to try with you a little a, a little exercise uh, I, I was looking at all your titles as i said 13 titles now with uh how it happened your titles read like poetry to me oh thank you i it's, it's weird titles gonna, matter a lot to me so i appreciate that. i'm gonna say them because i want people to hear them tonight i said goodbye Sorrow's Anthem, A Welcome Grave, The Silent Hour, Last Words, Rise the Dark, this one I love, Those Who Wish Me Dead, So Cold the River, The Cypress House, The Ridge, The Prophet, Envy the Night, and Last last Words. I wanted to save last words for last. <laughs> for last words. <laughs> Speaking of all those titles, oh, and by the way, there is a series uh, with a single character named Lincoln Perry, and those are Tonight I Said Goodbye, Sorrow's Anthem, A Welcome Grave, and The Silent Hour. There's another series, two titles, uh, based on uh, the character Marcus Novak, Last Words and Rise the Dark. Four of these titles, I understand, have been optioned out to Hollywood. Yeah, over the years we've, we've even had more than that. Some have come back to me, some are still in development. Um, we still have, yeah, we've got a lot out there under options. Some are in, in more active stages than others. Um, I would say Those Who Wish Me Dead and The Cypress House are probably the farthest along. Uh-huh. Um, I'm excited about One I Got Back, which is So Cold the River, which that one is set down in West Baden. And yeah, um, hoping to have some news on that one here. I think, I think we might have some exciting and uh and locally related developments there why don't you sit down at your keyboard and write a screenplay i have several times you have yes do I, you like it uh i love the process of script writing yes and it's so different than doing a novel. it's very different and i've collaborated on two one of those was a good experience one was not but then you realize that you know you're you're always handing it off to people who are going to come in and edit and change it. If you get a great star on, then they're going to have rewrites geared just toward what they want. A director is always going to have his vision. So a script always needs to be viewed as a collaboration. And the great thing about a novel is you could take all the ownership of it. You know that the product at the end of the day was within your control. That's a very different feeling than a script. I do enjoy the process, I, I, the storytelling muscles that are involved there, but at the end of the day, I'm a novelist first, and um, every now and then, I, I guess I dip my toe in the pool out there, but I would much rather be writing enough. Let's pretend I'm your editor, and I say, Michael, get rid of this dialogue. How do you react to that? 
are we allowed to use extreme profanity on the air? Or? <laughs> I'll beep them out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I hope that I react to that pretty well, actually. That's one of the things that um, I learned from Bob Hamill in those early years was not to sort of fear the red pen and the, yeah. the heavy edit, but to learn that it's your best friend and actually embrace it. And yeah. you want to reach the point where you are your own harshest critic. Right. Uh, and if you're there, then, you know, I think it's a, it's a pretty good spot. I've been very fortunate to work with great editors, um, and I'm sure they would be able to cite examples of uh, times when I've been very contentious. And, oh, is he a pain in the butt? Uh, do you think they say that? You know, I, I'm sure that they do. I think I hope that they would also say... I think it's fairly safe to to guess that they would say, I'm more inclined to completely blow things up than I am to polish and tweak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that instinct is good or bad. I know I frustrated some editors who wanted me to, you know, work on a 10-page section. And I said, you know what? You're right. These 10 pages are off, but they can't be fixed with a tweak. Right. I need to pull the whole thread out and put in something new which isn't exactly what they want to hear when we're pushing deadline. But <laughs> one of the worst moments is uh, would be when I see the final manuscript and I know it's locked and I can no longer tweak and change anything. That's There is that moment. Oh, yeah, that, that torments me. <laughs> and then I go out on... Wait! <laughs> exactly, I go out on tour and bookstores and different events and they ask me to do readings. Yeah. And as I'm reading from the book... What I read is never what's actually in the book. I'm always tweaking. So no kidding. Yep. What I I don't actually read from a hard copy. I read from pages, and they're all marked up, and I continue to edit after each each one. So by the way, you're going to be doing that a lot this month. You've already started your tour. Do you like doing those things? It's a great question. There is not an easy answer <laughs> at all. Uh, some of it is a lot of fun when you get out and see f- familiar faces and you see people who have responded well to the books. That's a thrill. Uh, the other aspect of it feels uh, like some sort of weird persona that you're asked to don for just a couple weeks out of the year. And, I mean, writers by nature, I think, are... Well, let's be honest, we spend most of our time sitting alone in a room at a desk. Right. So, and... It's like, okay, let's go out and and be a charming public speaker for two weeks. So you've got to find that gear. Um, And it always, the funny thing that I think the the audience doesn't consider much, and I don't know if the publisher does, book release comes at a time when the writer is absolutely sick of that book. You know, we've been through rewrites and edits and copy edits and put it to bed. We're usually on to the next project. And now you're asking us to go back and look at this thing. And to me, it's always, it's, it's too soon. I'm too close to it to, yeah. even, to even begin to like it. <laughs> so if they, if they ask me to go out and go on tour for a book that I wrote, say, five years ago, I might really enjoy that. <laughs> All right. The new book, How It Happened, released this month. May 15th was the release date. You can get it at your favorite bookstore. It's the 13th novel by Michael Corita. He has been described by no less than Stephen King as a master. And Michael, 
Thank you for joining us on Big Talk. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. It was great. 